Good morning, everyone. So we're not going to do uh, Sunday school this morning because we don't have enough kids because many of the kids are away listening to uh, or at Alora Road listening to John uh, preach this morning. And I just want to really encourage all of you guys, if you do get a chance this week to go make the trek out to Alora Road uh, and listen to John preach, he is an incredible communicator of this new covenant. And uh, I, I just think you'd be blessed beyond your belief if you could get out there. Um, in fact, he's so good. A lot of the people that normally here aren't here, including my wife and my kids. Um, and uh, I don't know what that means about me and what their faith in me is, but that's okay. Um, but I thought this morning we could have some fun. Anyone want to have some fun this morning? All right. Uh, so I want you all to grab your phones. Everyone grab your phone because we're going to need your phone for a moment here. And uh, we're going to do something uh, kind of, I think, will be fun. And, and really how it works is the more the better, right? So uh, we want to send a message to Greg to let him know how much he's loved and how much he's appreciated. So we got Greg's cell phone number here. I'm not going to say it because it's, you know, recorded maybe. But uh, I want every one of you to send a text. Just say, hi, Greg, we're missing you. And, and I think that the more people that send the text, that will make it better. I really want to blow up his phone. I'm kind of hoping his phone is on right now in church, because wouldn't that be cool? All of a sudden, he gets 40 texts. So wouldn't it be great to send a message just saying, hi, Greg? <clears throat> you know what would be even funnier? To send two texts. Just another text right after that, just to say, you know, we think you're pretty special. A third text after that, maybe just sort of letting him know that uh, you really appreciated what he said last week. Uh, just, again, we're, we're really wanting to blow up his phone here. Um, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab a picture of you guys. So maybe if all of you guys can just sort of uh, wave. I'll do, I have to do it in two pictures here. So just wave to Greg. All right. And uh, we'll send that one. And... Uh, we're going to send another one here. Just everyone wave again. Excellent. This is good stuff. All right. You can do one more text, just for fun. Just one, just for fun. Again, we're really hoping his phone blows up. Isn't it good to have fun? Amen. All right. I, I really believe that was an inspiration from, from God because uh, I prayed about that one. So uh, with that as our introduction, we're just going to kind of dive into the scripture now um, because I'm not sure how we can redeem that one or transition from it. So this morning, we're going to be studying uh, from the book of Ephesians again. We're going to continue our study. Uh, last week, we covered the first two verses of chapter one. And, and tonight or this morning, sorry, we're going to look at the first three verses of Ephesians. And uh, so just kind of uh, read along with me in your minds here as we're going to read. So we're going to read Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father God, this morning as we look at this text and we, we key on some key messages or truths in these, in these three verses, Father, would you open our hearts, open our minds, that we would be able to fully receive and embrace all that you have for us here. And that these truths would truly transform how we see you, how we see ourselves, how we see other people, and that would impact how we live and how we move forward. 
In your name we pray, amen. Well, growing up, my mom, uh, she had a, a few sayings that she would say to me over and over again. And one of those sayings she would say to me all the time was, you are what you eat. How many people had their parents say that or you heard that you are what you eat, right? She would also say that what you eat in your 20s determines how you feel in your 30s and what you eat in your 30s determines how you feel in your 40s. I'm beginning to believe her on that now. But, uh, but that one phrase, oh, you are what you eat, if that is true, then I never have to worry about becoming a vegetable. So I think that's safe for me. But, uh, but there is some truth to that, right? You are what you eat. You are what you consume, maybe. Uh, you, you are basically what we put into ourselves. And that's true on many different levels. You know, there was a time when psychologists, they used to argue and debate over this idea of this, this question of uh, what makes a person who they are. And they would look at three, not, three different factors and they say, well, is it someone's, their, their nature or is it their nurture or is it their environment? And they would kind of go back and forth. Which of those three really determines who, who a person is? So nature being basically what that says is you are what you are based on your DNA. So basically who you are was determined by your grandparents. You have really no say in it and your nature determines everything. And I think that's true to some degree. Right. I mean, if, for example, if my grandparents were all really, really big, I mean, they were all, you know, six foot eight and, and, you know, really large people, then chances are I, too, would be six foot eight and, and, a, and a big, strong person. And that would have an impact on what I'd be doing. Maybe I would be in the NBA. Maybe I'd be the one, you know, raining down threes and lifting up a championship trophy. And so that would impact, obviously, where I would go. Or maybe if my parents were super, super smart and I inherit some of that, then that may change some of my course directory. And so there is that sense of your nature, your DNA will have an impact on who you are and how you live. But then there's the nurture aspect. The nurture aspect says you are who you are based on your parents, based on your, your family of origin in terms of the culture that you grew up in, how your mom treated you, how your dad treated you, and, and what kind of family dynamics did you have. And so, the, you know, were you an only child? Were you one of 10 kids? Were you in the middle child, the oldest or the youngest? All of those factors would go into determining who you are. And so there's, there's that, that nurture aspect of things. And then finally, there's the environment aspect. And the environment aspect says you are who you are based on the environment you're in today, based on your, your peer group and your, the, the society you're in and the culture you're in. And so whether you're in the deep south or whether you're in Quebec or whether you're in BC or uh, you know, the, the southwest of, of the United States, all of that environment is going to have an impact on who you are. So of those three, the nature, the nurture, the environment, it's really, it's all three, all of them play a role to varying degrees in determining how we see ourselves and who we are. And, and really the key to all of it is what we think about ourselves. You see, we, we take these messages from all these other places around us and we allow those messages to begin to define us. And so Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks, as a man believes about who he is, so he is, so is he. Meaning what I believe about myself determines how I live. 
Now, that's true to a point. I mean, in the sense that I can't talk myself into certain things. Growing up, I really wanted to be the goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I was determined to do that. I had all the belief in my mind that I could do that. If only a scout were to see me playing road hockey, then that would have been it, right? So there is no, the reality is there is no amount of positive thinking that could lead me down that path. That just wasn't going to happen. That being said, though, on the other side of it, my negative thinking could lead me away from it. Meaning that I can, I can become a self-fulfilling prophecy based on what I think, based on what I believe. If I believe no one will love me, I will isolate, I will withdraw. And so in a, in a very real sense, if you begin to believe negative things about yourself, that will restrict and inhibit how you move forward. And so the reality is then, you know, shame understands this. And so what shame does, what the enemy does, is it will manipulate, it will lie to us, it will misinterpret the things that we've experienced growing up, the things that we're currently experiencing, the things around us to send us a message that maybe we're not good enough. Maybe to send us messages that we're, we're not acceptable. Maybe send us messages that there's something wrong with you. What's your problem? Messages that you're evil or you're, dis, you're twisted. All kinds of messages that you're, there's something wrong with who you are at the core. And those messages of shame, those messages of inferiority, they will lead us to isolate, to withdraw, to pull away from other people, and, and that we can't trust people. And they will define us in that sense. Or maybe what happens is we receive messages that define how we can possibly go get our needs met, what we need to do, what we need to accomplish. I had this, uh, <clears throat> this memory of, of when I was a little kid. I was probably about, I'm going to guess about four or five years old. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but I have a little sister, my younger sister, Nicole. She's about 19 months younger than me. And, and I love my sister. She's such a blessing to our family. Uh, but when she was born, she was born with all kinds of medical issues. She was, her heart never closed, the hole in her heart never properly closed. And so when she was just days old, I had to do open heart surgery. And, and I'm not sure if that led to other complications or if the other complications led to her hole not closing in her heart. But she ended up growing up very deve developmentally delayed. And to this day, she's very de developmentally delayed. And, and so, but growing up, you know, she just wasn't, she wasn't all there in terms of her understanding and how to, how to naturally move forward. And, and, you know, the doctors kept saying she's not going to survive a, a month. She's not going to survive a year. She's not going to survive past her 12th birthday. And, you know, she's still proving the doctors wrong today. So she's got a great spirit and a great heart, but she wasn't all uh, able, she wasn't maturing and, and uh, growing up like most kids would. And so what that meant was my parents, my mom in particular, had to put a lot of effort into looking after my little sister. And so there's four of us and my youngest sister, she got the bulk of the attention. And, and so here I was just about 19 months older and, and no fault of my parents, didn't quite get the same level of attention that my other siblings would have got. And so I remember one time um, again, when I was about four or five years old, I'm guessing, my, my sister had a bath, and for whatever reason, she ended up pooping all into the bath. And so the bath was a mess. And my mom had to, you know, take my sister out of that bath and, and clean her off somewhere else, and then was putting her to bed. And I remember coming into the bathroom and you seeing all the mess there. And if I can be really honest, as a little four or five year old, I was curious and I wanted to know what it felt like. 
So I reached out and began to play with the poop because I wanted to know what it was like. Right? There's a moment of honesty there. But then what I decided to do, I know, don't judge me, please. It's, right? But then what I decided to do to redeem myself is I cleaned it up. So I, I scooped up all the poop, put it in the toilet, and I, I rinsed down and wiped down and washed the whole bathtub for a four, four or five-year-old. So my mom came in and had no idea, and she was amazed that I did this for her. And so guess what she, her response was? It wasn't anger for sure, right? It was praise. It was thank you. Oh, that made life so much easier because you can imagine what it's like to be a mom of four kids, one being special needs, and just all that, oh, more work, more work, and then suddenly realizing that more work was done by one of your kids without being asked. So she was praising me, and I remember something clicked in my head. Oh, so if I serve people, if I work hard, if I give of myself for others, then people will love me back. That will be my place. And so that was one of many messages, but that was one that I remember. Something clicked in my head where I began to learn that if I work hard enough and I serve people and I give to others, then they'll love me and accept me. And so to this day, I find it much harder to receive and far more comfortable giving and serving because there's still something in me that says, the more I serve you, the more loved and accepted I'll be. It's safer to me. And so these are some of these messages that shame in, in our life and the enemy begins to, to kind of place in our heads. And so it's really important to understand who we are and why we are that way and how we can now live in light of who we really are. And that's what brings us to these opening verses in the book of Ephesians here, right? Paul opens this letter to the saints who are at Ephesus. Or as we saw last time we were going through this passage, really, it's, it's an, it was a circular letter. It was a letter that was meant for all of the churches. So it wasn't just the church of, of Ephesus. It could have been the church of Laodicea. It could have been the church of Colossae. But also it could be the church today. And so really, we can interpret this passage as saying to the saints at New Life Fellowship, for you and I, right? And so it's, he's speaking to us. And notice how he refers to us. He refers to us as the, the saints. So it's important for us to define and understand what this term saint means. We use it in our common vernacular quite a bit, but I don't know if we really understand the term. So I decided to do a little bit of research and kind of, kind of wondered what, how does the world define this term? How is, how is the culture that we live in, how have they defined that term? Because chances are that's going to influence how we define that term. So here's how the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defined it. It defined saint as being a good and holy person, and especially one who in the Christian church is declared worthy of a special honor. That's their first definition. The second definition is a person who is very good, helpful, or patient. You were a saint for helping me all day. Here's another definition I found. Very similar, though. A saint is a person who is very holy or just very good. However, any person who is considered deeply religious or especially generous could be called a saint. You might say that someone is a saint if they go to religious services every day or if they spend a lot of time volunteering at a school or at a hospital. Think about that. What's really the, the, the core or the basis of which, which we refer to someone as a saint? It's all about their behavior. It's all about what they're doing. 
Are they doing good things? Are they going to church every day? Are they serving? Are they helping out? In fact, the most common time I hear people use the word saint in our, in our common vernacular, it's, well, I'm no saint. Meaning I'm not perfect. I don't behave well. I don't do everything right. I'm not always giving and serving and volunteering. I'm no saint. And so we typically define ourselves on those terms. But what if, what if you being a saint has nothing to do with what you do? What if you being a saint has nothing to do with your religious service, the number of times you go to church, the number of times you pray, or any of that? You see, the the word here in Greek that Paul uses, the Greek word hagias, and it literally translates to holy one, or since really Paul is referring to the church at Ephesus, to the saints at Ephesus, he's really talking about holy ones. So all of us here who name the name of Jesus are holy ones, are saints. But that's not typically how we refer to ourselves as Christians. What is the most common definition, the common phrase that people use to define themselves as Christians? We are just what? Sinners saved by grace. And that becomes the common definition for us. The problem is nowhere in Scripture does God refer to us as that. Nowhere does that phrase, sinners saved by grace, ever show up in Scripture. And and the reality is people say that and they think it sounds so humble. Oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace because I am so imperfect. I'm no good, but God's grace is saved. And it sounds humble, but I think it leads to, to horrendous consequences. It leads to all kinds of trouble for you and I. And so the problem with that is, is really you have to understand what made us a sinner in the first place. Were you and I a sinner the first time we lied? The moment you lied, boom, now you're a sinner. Do you become a sinner when you trip your sibling and you laugh at them? Is that what makes you a sinner? No. Do you become a sinner the moment you first steal that cookie out of the cookie jar? Is that what makes you a sinner? No. Why why were we sinners? Because we were born one. The reason we lied, the reason we tripped our sibling and laughed at them, the reason we stole the cookie jar, the reason we do all these horrible, selfish things is because you and I were born sinners. And we were born sinners not because of what you and I did, but because what our ancestor Adam did in the garden. So what that tells us is who you are is independent of what you do. Amen? Right? We were all born sinners because of that. Well, the wonderful thing is that God understood that. And so God realized that it wasn't going to be the number of righteous or holy or religious things that you would do to ever change you being a sinner. Because if you think about it, if you have a pig and he's born a pig, no matter how many times you bathe it, no matter how many times you dress it up in little outfits and put lipstick on it, maybe a little bow in its hair and you brush it, at the end of the day, what do you got? A weird looking pig. That's all you've got at the end of the day. Because no matter what you do, you can't change its nature. You can't change who it is. And so you and I were born a sinner, but we didn't stay that way. See, Romans 5 verse 8. I think we we glance over this so often. It says, Romans 5 verse 8, while you were sinners. While you were sinners. What does that imply? Something's changed. That you were, 
but no longer. You, you at one time actually were a sinner, but something's different now. Something is altered about who you are and you're no longer that. Something has changed in us. And so what's changed? Well, let's look at a verse in uh, like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you've been joined to Christ, he's a new creation, not a cleaned up, bathed with a little cute skirt on creation, but a wholly different, entirely new creation. The old has passed away. And when do we use that terminology, passed away? We're referring to when someone dies. You see, the sinner wasn't just forgiven. You see, if that's all that happened, then yeah, you still would be a forgiven sinner. But instead, God crucified that sinner with Jesus on that cross. That sinner no longer remains. Behold, the new has come. You're no longer that old person. You're no longer that sinner saved by grace. Now you are a saint. Now you are a holy one. You're someone entirely different. And I think God has given us this incredible illustration to help remind us of this truth. Often, if you know, this verse that we have, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is a very, very famous verse, and it's often uh, seen on Christian artwork. And often, the, the, kind of the backdrop of that is a butterfly. And I kind of wonder, maybe God created the, the butterfly just for this verse. Maybe when God was writing this verse out and, you know, preparing ahead of time, he thought, you know what, we need an illustration for this verse. It's so important. I know what I'll do. I'm going to create the butterfly. But it doesn't start off as a butterfly. It starts off as what? A little caterpillar, right? This little, fat, hairy, multi-legged caterpillar that, you know, lives amongst the trees, chewing on all these leaves, eating them up until it's all fat in its belly. And then what does it do? It spins itself a cocoon and wraps itself up in this cocoon so it can begin to transform. Now, if, if you and I were to see a cocoon right in the middle of that transformation process and we decided, you know what, I'm curious. I, I mean, I touched the poo for goodness sake. Of course I'm curious, right? So I'm like, I'm sorry, Cheryl, I'm really sorry. That's going to ruin your whole day, isn't it, right? But, but nonetheless, so you're curious. We're like, we've like, we got to find out what's inside of that. And so I grab my pocket knife and I, I slip open the cocoon very gently and I open it up and am I going to see a caterpillar shriek at me because it's still getting changed? Is that what we're going to find? No. Do you know what you will find if you were to open up that cocoon in the middle of the transformation process? You would find black ooze. Black goo. See what happens to the caterpillar is the caterpillar actually dies and it decomposes. And then it recreates, it, it, it reforms this, this incredible, they call it a metamorphosis, that everything about this thing is now changed and it reconstitutes itself now as a new creation, something different. And it breaks forth out of that cocoon and now it begins to fly. And we look at it and we say, wow, look at the caterpillar saved by the cocoon. Is that what we call it? No. We don't call it a caterpillar anymore because we recognize that it is forever different. It's not just a caterpillar with wings. It's something different now. It is now a butterfly. And that's what God's done with you and I. That you were this caterpillar, but you were placed in Christ and crucified and, and that old self is dead and gone. And you're now someone new 
Not a sinner saved by grace, but a holy one, a holy person. In fact, in fact, this, is, this will really blow your mind. You are the holiest person on the face of the earth today. So let's, let's really prove that. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that you are the holiest person on the face of the earth. Go ahead. You know what I marvel? I marvel at this. Every time I get groups to do this, everyone laughs. They say it and they laugh and they go, oh, this is so funny. It's not true, but I'll say it to humor him, right? They don't actually believe it. And that's why it's so funny to people. But the reality is that's true. You are, in fact, the holiest person on the face of the earth. Let me prove it to you. Remember the story of Moses in the burning bush? Right? Moses is walking through this wilderness and, and he's looking after the sheep and God needs to get his attention. God wants to kind of draw Moses' attention and God understands how to get men's attention so he starts a fire, right? Because really nothing gets a man's attention like fire, right? I mean, in the moment there's a fire, oh, fire. So Moses has got to go check it out. And so he sees this fire burning and then, then God says, well, that's not enough. We got to get him really curious. So it's a fire that doesn't consume itself. So Moses is like, that's an odd fire. Now I'm really curious. So he gets really close to it now. And, and God's like, that's not enough. And he begins to speak. And now God's really got Moses' attention, right? Because it's a fire and it's an odd fire and it's a fire that talks. How cool is that? Now I really got to go check it out. So he approaches the fire and what is the fire? What does the bush say to Moses? Take off your shoes because I just swept in this place. Is that what he says? No, he says, take off your shoes because this is holy ground. So Moses has to remove his sandals. Now think about it. What was so holy about that bush? I mean, really think about that for a moment. Was it, was it the right size of bush? Was it really massive and really big? Was it, did it have the right amount of fruit? Was it such ripe fruit and delicious fruit? What was, was it, it had all kinds of berries on it maybe, right? Was it, was it just this wonderful shade of green? Was it, was it just this, you know, the right age of bush? What was so special about the bush? God was in the bush. Had nothing to do with the bush, Right? The fact that God was in the bush, that's what made it holy ground. In fact, because God was in the bush, could we not say in that moment, at that time, that that little parcel of ground that was the bush was the holiest place on the face of the earth? Amen? Well, what if God wasn't in that bush? What, would, what if he was in the bush that was about five meters to the left over here? Would that have been the holy ground? Sure it would have been. Well, what if that bush was really weak? I mean, just a little tiny sapling. What if it had no fruit? What if the leaves were really small and brown? What if it was highly diseased and about to die? Would have any of it mattered? No. Because it wasn't about the bush. It wasn't about the fruit the bush offered. It wasn't what the bush was able to do. It was the fact that the one in the bush is what made it holy. You see, what God has done is he's put your life, his life where? In you and I. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, we have it up on the screen here. It says that, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
that the Holy Spirit, God himself, resides in you, in, in you guys right now. That's what makes you the holiest people on the face of the earth. Well, what if you leave here and, and you end up, you know, speeding? Are you still holy? Yeah. What if you leave here and you go and you lie? Are you still holy? Yeah. What if you leave here and you go steal something? Are you still holy? Sure you are. What if you leave here and go eat Taco Bell? I'd just be concerned about you. That's all. That's, that's, but you're still holy, right? So the reality is it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many times you pray and read your Bible. That doesn't define your holiness. Your holiness has been defined by the one who lives inside of you. And the one who lives inside of you is Jesus Christ himself. That's what makes you the holiest person the face of the earth. But if the person next to you has accepted Jesus, guess what? They too are the holiest person on the face of the earth. But it doesn't stop there. You see, God just didn't do that just for kicks. He didn't do that just to say, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have these people holy? He needed to do that in order to accomplish his ultimate goal. And that ultimate goal wasn't just to clean you up and make you holy. It was to qualify you for his life. Think about it. If you and I were truly still sinners, could God live inside of you? No. What's interesting in John 14, Jesus says to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says, right now the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. You see, at that point in John 14, there was no cross yet. He hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't made that transformation of who you and I were. So in the Old Testament, those Old Testament believers, all they could have at best was the Holy Spirit would be kind of alongside them. But you and I have something far greater, far more miraculous. Not the Holy Spirit near you, around you, beside you, but the Holy Spirit who's come and taken permanent residence inside us. And that was why he needed to make us holy, to qualify you, to contain, to possess the Holy Spirit of God himself, Jesus living in us. Now, why? Simply put, so he can now live in you. Not just so he could take up residence and be close to you. Not just to, so that he could like keep you company on cold and lonely nights. Not just so that he can speak to you without long distance charges. But rather so that Jesus himself could express his life, his power through you and I. And that's what makes all the difference. You see, I, in my own ability, in my own strength, I really don't have much to offer people. I have... I have this much patience. Now, some people have this much and some people have this much, but it is a limited supply of patience. I have a limited supply of peace. And I'm discovering with five kids, that is more, those five kids require more pace, patience and peace than I have. I have only so much love. I only have so much kindness and so much goodness. And if it's up to me and my abilities, I'm going to run out pretty quickly. But how much peace and patience does Jesus have? An unlimited amount. And so what he's done is he's put his life inside of me to empower me to do that which I cannot. So I was praying, thinking about this. I said, God, how do I, how do I illustrate this to people? And this is the illustration that he gave me. 
Think about a light bulb, right? We got light bulbs in here. You probably got light bulbs in your home. And I imagine, and, and you know, our world is filled with light bulbs. Now think about it. A light bulb on its own, how much can it do? Nothing. All it is, just a, a collection of materials, and whether it be a LED light or a fluorescent light or an incandescent, the old one with the wire across there, all it can do is just take up space. It really, on its own, can't do very much. Makes a lousy doorstop, can't open letters, right? It just can't do much at all. But now, if you put some power through it, if you run some electricity through it, whether it be through that incandescent across that wire or, or in across the, the, the tube and, and charging up the, the chemicals in there or, or whether through that, that diode and the LED lights, suddenly that light bulb, which was doing nothing, can do incredible things. Suddenly it lights up. And now we can see in this room. Or maybe, maybe you have a flashlight and it can you know, light up your path if you're walking late at night in the campground. Or help you look under your bed for your wallet and your keys that your dog has stolen from you. Or maybe it can be used to power the projector so we can meet here and, and look at these words in the screen. Or maybe it could be used now in a lighthouse to protect the lives of sailors so they don't go shipwrecked on the rocks in the dangerous shallow parts of the sea that they can't see. Suddenly, that useless light bulb can be used to transform and do all kinds of incredible things. But it's not coming from the light bulb itself. It's merely the power, the electricity that's powering the light bulb to do all those wonderful things. Well, that's what God's doing with you and I. We're like the light bulb. By ourselves, we can do nothing. Isn't that what John 15, 5 says? By ourselves, in our, in our own strength, we're like that light bulb that makes a lousy doorstop and a lousy letter opener. We can't offer much to this world. But suddenly you run some power, some electricity through us, the life of Jesus, and suddenly we are capable of all kinds of things. Suddenly now it's not my limited supply of peace. I have an infinite amount of peace, the peace of Jesus Christ. It's not just my patience. It's just not my wisdom. It's no longer just my goodness and my strength, but an infinite supply that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that strength and that power now, it can manifest through me and impact those around me. That I get to share the life of Jesus with Chuck. And Chuck gets to share it with me. And that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Where he says that you and I have been blessed with everything we need in the person of Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. It means you and I, we don't have to beg for more blessings. And I see that from people all the time. God, would you bless me? Would you give me peace? Would you give me patience? I love how Watchman Nee put it. He's put it so well. He says, when you pray that prayer, God won't give you more patience. The reason is because he gave you Jesus, who is your patience. He, he tells a story about this one lady came up to him and says, Brother Nee, I could sure use some more patience in my life. My husband's a bear to live with. Would you pray for me right now so I could experience more patience? And he said, I would love to. And he began to pray right there. And then he says, Lord God, my dear sister, she wants to experience more patience. 
So would you bring such trial, such tribulation, such hardships into her life that she might, at this point, she gets up and she starts beating him with her purse. Stop praying that. Stop, I have enough of that in my life. And watch when he looked at her and says, my dear sister, don't you understand that he won't give you more patience? You've got all the patience you need because you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have the life of Jesus who is your patience. Trust in that. So what's the moral of the story there? Don't ask, watch, we need to pray for you. But the real moral of the story is we've got everything. We've got Jesus, the person of Jesus. So all we need to do is trust him. It's like the light bulb again. See, the light bulb on its own can light up a room, but it doesn't always light up the room. you got to flip the switch. And flipping that switch allows that power to flow through it. Well, you and I have a switch of our own. Because we don't always show that light. Sometimes we prevent that light from, from, from showing. And so what we need to do, we need to flip our switch. Well, what's our switch? It's simple. It's faith. It's trusting Jesus. It's trusting God. So that his life could show. So in this moment, I turn to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I need you right now. Last night, one of my kids, she'll remain nameless, but one of my kids was, was causing all kinds of trouble at bedtime. Did not want to go down, was, was getting up for all kinds of reasons, and, and there's a pattern in this. And so we, me as a parent, I got a couple different options here. Do I come down on them hard? Do I just begin to scold them and yell at them and, and so forth? And there, there might be a time to, to give them a kind of a, a stiff lecture, but I was uh, praying. I said, God, what do I do here? And he revealed to me that really what she needed was self-control. That she couldn't, she couldn't make good choices in that moment. So I came to her and I said to this child that will remain, remain, remain nameless. And I said, right now you need self-control. But you don't have it. So Jesus is in you. You need his self-control. Because self-control is one of the fruit of the spirit, not fruit of the Christian. So I said to this child, I said, why don't you pray? And ask Jesus to provide to you the self-control that you need. And so we prayed together. And she didn't get up anymore after that. Because she began to tap into a power that she didn't previously have. She flipped the switch. She started making better choices. And she was able to go to sleep. And I still had sanity today as a result of that. And so it's, it's just flipping into that, that power. Does that make sense? Now, some would say, okay, Ross, I see what you're saying, but isn't it just semantics, whether we're a saint or sinner saved by grace? I mean, don't at the end of the day, we kind of lead at the same place. We kind of get there together. And I say, no. I think it matters incredibly because the reality is how I see myself will lead me down two different paths. If I, if I continue to see myself simply as a sinner saved by grace, then it will lead me down a path of sin management. It will lead me down a path where I am trying my best to manage what I believe to be my sinful nature. And I will now begin to <clears throat> try to limit and prevent certain sins in my life. And, and it, one, one outcome of that would be that I, I just become overwhelmed by it. And I fail and I beat myself up and I condemn myself and I say, what kind of a lousy person am I? I'm so horrible. Maybe I'm not even saved. And I begin to question about who I am because I keep blowing it. 
And then eventually I just begin to hide and isolate and withdraw. And so I prevent you from seeing the flaws. I prevent you from seeing my hurts and my mistakes. And instead of in that moment of reaching out for help, I do the very opposite of what I really need and I withdraw and I'm more isolated. And that's the best outcome. See, the worst outcome, if I go down this path where I believe I'm a sinner saved by grace and I, in my own strength, try to manage my sins, and maybe I'm successful at some of it. And what ends up happening, I become really, really arrogant. I become super proud. Look at what I've been able to accomplish. And so with that arrogance, with that pride, comes judgmental and condemnation towards other people. Why can't they get this sorted out? Why can't they fix this? What's their problem? And I begin to judge other people in addition to hiding all my flaws and all my shortcomings and all my mistakes because I can't let them see how well I have it all together. So in both cases, we're hiding, we're isolating, and nobody knows us. And we're dying inside because you're trying to change who you think you are. But what if we could see ourselves as someone different, see ourselves now as a saint, as a holy one, with the person of Jesus Christ living inside of us? Let's imagine for a moment what life could be like. Let's imagine if we really believe that we're a saint, if we really believe that we have everything we need for life and godliness, if we really believe that we have every spiritual blessing, that there's no more to come because you got the person of Jesus and Jesus is everything you need. He's the answer to all of life's problems. If we really began to believe that, I think life would look like this. I made a list. We would no longer be afraid of what God thinks of us. Knowing that punishment and disappointment does not await us when we stand face to face with him. Imagine that. There be no fear. As 1 John 4 says, there's perfect love casts out fear. Because there would be no trepidation. I know that when I stand face to face with my Jesus, with my Lord and Savior, there's going to be a giant smile. There's only going to be a loving response. And I'm no longer afraid of what he thinks of me because I know I am his holy one. I am his beloved. I am loved so much that he couldn't bear to have any distance between me and himself. So we became one. And he's joined to my spirit and me to his so that we are, we are one. I think we would finally begin to treat ourselves with the love and the dignity that we deserve. That we would finally accept ourselves. See, too often as this sinner saved by grace, that there's something wrong with me, we're kind of like the anorexic person who's on all these diets, who's depriving themselves, hoping that they could achieve a target, achieve a goal, and then they could be loved and accepted, but never quite doing enough and hating and condemning themselves all the more. But if I could see that I, who I am today, a saint who, yes, sometimes sins, because being a saint has nothing to do with your behavior and performance in terms of defining who you are, but the more you begin to believe it, the more it begins to change how you live. And number one, I can love myself. I can accept myself. We wouldn't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, the freedom that comes from that. To, to be able to laugh at mistakes. To be able to, to not worry about, you know, the, the crazy things we do. 
I have a little bit of a, a shiner below my eye here. And I don't know if you can see it in this light, but when we go out, you'll be able to see it better. And I was trying to think, what kind of a cool story can I come up with, right? I was telling my kids, well, I fought a dragon, and, you know, that's what happened to me, right? And, and so what kind of cool story? The reality is, you know how I got this? I was playing volleyball, and, and they, the guy made a spike, and I went to go bump it, and I, I bumped it just not very well. and went off my arms, into my face, hit my sunglasses, and now I got a shiner. Isn't that a fun story, right? Isn't that exciting? And you know what? Others were watching that. You know what their response was? They laughed. Do you know why they laughed at me? Because it was funny. <laughs> and that's okay. I told them beforehand, I'm here to make other people feel better about themselves. Because if they see me playing volleyball, they go, well, I'm not that bad. But I'm also here as a testament of my righteousness in Christ. It's okay to laugh at ourselves. So we can laugh at our mistakes and the embarrassing things we do. We wouldn't let shame lie to us in order that it would isolate and control us. That we wouldn't withdraw and pull away. But I could show up and say, here I am. I am loved by Jesus. We would experience hope, joy, peace, and rest. And I capitalized all those things because that's a person. Hope is a person. Joy is a person. Peace is a person. Rest is a person. It's the person of who? Jesus Christ. Because it would no longer be me doing my best, but it would be Christ, his life through me. We'd begin to treat others with greater love and respect because they wouldn't need to earn it. Because not only am I holy, but so are they. This would be amazing. We wouldn't look at others as problems to solve, but people to love. Just think about what that would do for relationships. What that would do to a marriage. What would that do for parents and their kids? That I wouldn't see the behavior as something to manage and, and change, but now I just get to love that person right where they're at. 100% unconditional. And just love them. And that would change our friendships I would change the world. We wouldn't need to control our friends and our family around us for fear of what others would think of us. See, so often we get embarrassed for other people's behavior because we're worried about that is a reflection on me. But who are you? You're the holiest person in the face of the earth. Shame has no power. And then this one here, I think the world would finally see that there's something different about the church of Jesus Christ. Because they would see a peace and a confidence and a rest. They would see that we have something that this whole world desires. Every person in this world is calling out, crying out for love, for worth, for acceptance. And we're the only ones that have the answer. It's Jesus and so what would happen is sharing our faith would become as natural as offering a drink of water to someone on a thirsty day, on a hot day. That they would be able to come to us and they'd see something in us and they would be just knocking down our door saying, what is it that you've got? And we would naturally and freely share our faith in Jesus without fear, without worry, or without, am I doing it right? It would just naturally flow. Because again, it's no longer I, but Christ in me. And that, I think, 
can transform the world around us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you for what you've done. We thank you the fact that you have made it possible for you to live inside of us. And so we're never alone. That you've transformed us into someone who is loved and accepted. Who is perfect at the core, even though we do not behave perfectly all the time. Who is holy and righteous, even though we do not behave holy and righteous all the time. We're no longer a sinner. We're now a saint. A saint that possesses the infinite power and life of Jesus Christ in us. Would you, Father, transform our thinking? Would you renew our mind to see ourselves differently? To see our spouse differently? To see our friends differently? To see our neighbors differently? So that we can share your life with those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.